0: Welcome to Itihasa, an Indic History Podcast, and you're listening to episode 13 of this season, Vijayanagara. In the last episode, we understood the medieval South Indian polity by looking at it through the lens of power structures in Andhra Desa. We also looked at the kingdom of Kakatiya and its rise to power, along with the dynamics between it and its rival kingdoms. In this episode, we shall delve into the political conditions in the kingdoms of Pandyas, Yadavas, the rise of Delhi Sultanate and the impact of its ascendancy on the kingdoms of the south. It's really important we understand this aspect as it sets up the stage for the conditions that gave rise to the birth of both Vijayanagara and Bahamini empires. The story begins with Garshas Malik, aka Alauddin Khilji in the future, the nephew and son-in-law of Sultan Jalaluddin. He resented his father-in-law and his wife for their high-handed behaviour. He wanted to punish them, but before that he had to gather strength and resources, enough to be able to oppose the Sultan and his sons. So he obtains permission of Jalaluddin for a campaign against Malwa and he instead advances rapidly into South India. He pushes against the Yadava kingdom of Devagiri in 1296 AD. This was the time when the reigning king Ramadeva's army was away from Devagiri on his distant expedition against one of the other kingdoms which were perennially engaged in their greed of expansionism and weakening each other at every turn. Alauddin Khilji's brisk against Devagiri overwhelms Ramadeva and after a week of siege against the Yadava capital, he sues for peace. Ramadeva ends up surrendering a lot of wealth, elephants, horses and even offering one of his daughters in marriage to Khilji. When Ramadeva's son Sangama hears of the invasion, he rushes back with his army to Devagiri. But by then the peace talks had already concluded and Ramadeva had surrendered. Sangama himself had to submit to Khilji and accept his suzerainty for the time being. After this, Khilji restores the kingdom back to Ramadeva and both of them exchange vows of friendship that ends up being really strong and plays a crucial role in later campaigns of Khilji in the south. Alauddin Khilji had pursued a policy of plundering and looting in the south instead of annexing the kingdoms. I think he was pragmatic enough to realise the difficulty in managing such a vast territory from so far up north and hence he must have preferred the quick loot and booty that filled his coffers instead. In 1304 AD Khilji sends an expedition against the Kakatiya capital city of Varangal. This army was led by Khilji's general Malik Fakruddin Juna, who approached Varangal via the route of Bengal. The Kakatiya army meets Fakruddin way ahead of Varangal and surprises the Khilji general, which leads to a rout of the enemy army, and Khilji's army takes severe losses. This compels them to beat a retreat and abandon the campaign against Kakatiyas for now. After this military disaster, the Delhi Sultanate's prestige takes a beating which emboldens the earlier subjugated kingdoms and chieftains in Deccan and South India. This prompts Sangama of Devagiri, son of Ramadeva, to prematurely rebel against Khilji by refusing to send the annual tribute and also giving shelter to the refugee king of Gujarat and his daughter who were escaping the Sultan's forces. Here something interesting happens. Sangama's father Ramadeva writes to Khilji about his son's rebellion and asks him to send an army to suppress it. Why he does this isn't exactly recorded. Was Ramadeva pursuing a deeper strategic policy or was he merely trying to be loyal to Khilji out of genuine friendship? It's not clear. Either way, Khilji sends his favourite slave and lover Malik Kafur with an army to attack Devagiri once again, resulting Kafur and Sangama facing off. Sangama loses his battle and flees. With this, Malikapur ends up plundering the capital yet again and capturing Ramadeva and his family as prisoners. It's recorded that Yadava king Ramadeva remains by the side of the Sultan for six months and Sultan treats him with kindness before sending him back to Devagiri with a lot of wealth and presents. Khilji hands him back his Yadava kingdom and also gives him additional territory from the Gujarat province to rule over it. Ramadeva rewards the Sultan's generosity with his lifelong loyalty and offers Devagiri as a base to launch further invasions down south. Here I have to pause for a second and bust one prevalent narrative. This narrative claims that the entire of South India and Deccan was united in its fight against the despotic Delhi Sultanates. Like I showed you in the earlier case, this narrative is anything but the truth. This was an after-the-fact invention of the chroniclers trying to embellish the credentials of Hindu rulers. So Hindu rulers too had their own share of Farishta syndrome that resulted in baseless hagiographies. Again, this is not to entirely discount or say that such a struggle didn't happen. Surely many parts of South Indian kingdoms didn't just roll over and surrender to the Islamic hordes coming from the north. They did offer a tough fight and fought tooth and nail in most instances. In the 14th century, most of the southern kingdoms did rise up in rebellion, individually, either to further their own agendas or to stall Islamic onslaught. But to say that most of the south and Deccan was united in its attempt to push back the Islamic invasions. That were hell-bent on destroying the South is an overstretch. The evidence, as per newer research, is weak in favour of it. The prevalent polity of the period in question didn't favour formation of such a united friend, especially when the major empires in the South were in terminal decline after decades of fighting each other. And last but not least, the South Indian polity that was untouched by Islam or any foreign power for thousands of years, had no previous mental framework to assess the threat posed by militant Islam in the subcontinent. Islam as a political ideology was something the polity didn't care to offer an intellectual response to, even when they were capable of offering one from the Hindu perspective. And neither did they take time to study their new enemy from a military perspective. Even if they did, they were overwhelmed by sheer numbers alone. All of these factors led to a sort of shock and awe effect for these kingdoms down south. The realisation about Islam's danger to their way of life came a little too late. Now that's made clear and out of the way, let's get back to the story. With the resubjugation of Yadava kingdom under Ramadeva of Devagiri and having a stable ally in him, the Sultan Kelji, in 1309 AD sent yet another expedition. Under Malik Kafur, against Kakatiya capital city of Varangal. Ramadeva allows Kafur to use Devagiri as a forward base for his campaigns against Kakatiyas. Ramadeva has his own axe to grind against Varangal, in addition to his rock solid allegiance to Khilji. In 1310 AD, Malik Kapoor laid siege to the formidable Varangal's double laid fortress guarding the capital. After a month long siege, the outer layer of the fortress falls, and this forces Prataparudra to open peace negotiations. As a result of this peace treaty, Prataparudra is forced to surrender vast amounts of wealth, horses, elephants, in addition to agreeing to an annual tribute. With this, the Kakatiya kingdom too effectively becomes a vassal of the Delhi's Kilji Sultanate, along with the Yadavas. With the protection buffer of Kakatiyas, and Yadavas gone in the Deccan, the Hoyasala and Pandya kingdoms end up in the sights of the Khiljis. Once again the Yadava king Ramadeva of Devagiri offers his city as a forward base for Malik Kafur's campaigns against the Hoyasala capital Dwarasamudra and Pandya capital Madurai. Even here Ramadeva of Devagiri once again has an axe to grind against the Bhallala tree of Hoyasalas. Due to the animosity between Hoyasalas and Yadavas due to their own expansionist feud. This is a major reason why Ramadeva actively supports Malik Kafur in his campaign against Bhalala III. Malik Kafur waits till Bhalala III is away on yet another expedition against his rival Pandya kingdom in 1310 AD. Yet again, this illustrates the incessant intrigues, animosity and a never-ending cycle of wars between these four major kingdoms in the south, which makes it really easy for the Islamic invaders to take them down with little effort. And their thirst for hegemony over each other coupled with this loosely coupled political structure and the heart of each of these kingdoms led to an eventual implosion of all of them. So, it's no surprise at all. Because it was always on the cards. In 1310 AD, the reigning king of the Pandya kingdom, Maravarman Kulasekara's death, sets into motion a civil war between his sons Veera Pandya IV and Sundara Pandya IV, with each of them laying claim to the Pandya throne. This was in spite of the dead king nominating Veera Pandya IV as his successor, and Bhallala III, for Hoysala being its arch rival. Wanted to obviously take advantage of this vulnerable situation. Once Bhalala III is busy in his campaign against the Pandyas, Malik Kafur enters Hoysala capital of Dwara Samudra literally unopposed, and lays waste to it. Bhalala III rushes back to his capital and realizes that it's already too late. He overrules his nobles who wanted Hoysalas to fight and instead. Balala decides to become a vassal of Khilji. And on the terms offered by Malik Kafur, he accepts the suzerainty of the Khilji Sultanate. Finally, the only one standing in between the Khiljis and the domination of the entire south is the last remaining Pandya kingdom. Balala III, as expected, offers his services to Malik Kafur in his campaign against the Pandyas. Palala personally escorts Kafur through the tough mountain passes and leaves him at the Pandya kingdom's doorstep. Both Malik Kafur and Palala rely on the current vulnerability of the Pandya kingdom due to the ongoing civil war. Expecting an easy route, Malik Kafur marched on the Pandya territory. It is here that the warring Pandya princes and brothers decide to put aside their conflict after realizing the grave threat of Islamic onslaught to their empire and the Tamil country, so they end their civil war and offer a combined resistance to Malik Kafur, while cleverly avoiding pitch battles with Kafur's superior forces. Both the Pandya brothers use scorched earth policy to deny Kafur any resources for his campaign. And also, both of the brothers cleverly avoid getting holed up in the fortresses that could be reduced by Kafur's experienced and veteran siege personnel. In short, the Pandyas were wise enough to not repeat the mistakes of their rivals. Kafur first marched against the city of Birdhul, or also known as Veera the capital of Veera Pandya in the neighbourhood of Urayur, which is in the modern-day Tiruchirappalli, Tamil Nadu. Veera Pandya decides to evacuate the capital and not offer a battle. So the capital falls to Kafur's forces. From here, Kafur pursues pandya who has fled to Kandur. And on his way to Kandur, Kafur sees his convoy of treasure that was being transported on the backs of 120 elephants. But Kafur fails to find pandyan even in Kandur. After this, Kafur marches to Kanchipuram, loots and desecrates the temples there before finally marching back to Veerasolan. From here, Malikapur now marches against Sundarapandya's capital, Madurai, only to find that Sundarapandya was forewarned and abandoned the city, escaping with his family and the treasury into the deep country. Malikapur is incensed at the fact that there was nothing left to loot in Madurai, so he sets the fire to temples in the city. By this time, the Islamic invaders had turned desecration iconoclasm of temples into an art form. As per K.A. Nilakanta Shastri in his seminal work, The History of South India, published in 1955, it was at this point that Vikramapandya, Pandya, Sindhara Pandya's uncle, comes out of retirement to lead the Pandyas against Islamic invaders and inflicts a decisive defeat on them in a pitched battle and forcing Kafu to retreat back to Delhi. While Nilakhanda Shastri doesn't quote any sources for this battle between Vikrama Pandya and Malik Kafu's forces, I think Shastri sourced this from the 14th century Sanskrit and Malayalam treatise called Leela Tilakam composed by an unknown author. In that there seems to be reference to a certain Vikrama Pandya defeating the Muslims. But as per KKR Nair in his research paper published in the Journal of Kerala Studies in the year 1987, he seems to assert that the Vikrama Pandya being referred to in the Leela Tilakam, is a different person, who defeated a different Muslim army in between 1365-1370 AD, which is almost 60 years after Kafur's invasion. And that there is no historical evidence to show that the dead Pandya king Sekara had a brother. So most likely Nilakantha Shastri was wrong here due to a mistake identity, and also might have been drawn towards a story, a fantastic and dramatic ending in which a retired veteran uncle comes out of his retirement and takes the field to defeat the Mlachas from the north who were defiling the Pandya kingdom and the Tamil culture. In my opinion, what happened was. Malik Kafur realized the risk of constantly chasing these two Pandya brothers who refused to offer a battle. And considering the fact that both the Pandya brothers instead chosen the hit-and-run tactics to harass Kafur's army, there would have been frustration and mutiny building up in Kafur's army who were already too far from the nearest forward base and Delhi. The risk of getting bogged down in deep Pandya country while trying to tackle guerrilla warfare was very real. And Kafur could have lost his entire army in a well set up ambush by the Pandya brothers. Along with the large loot he accumulated during the raid of Pandya cities and towns. So Mallik Kapoor, he had probably decided to give up the wild goose chase of the two brothers and return to Delhi with the loot. And with that the invasion of Pandya kingdom ended as abruptly it had started. It is recorded that in the October of 1311 AD, Malik Kafur reached the imperial capital of Delhi. After his campaigns done south, he presented to the Sultan Alauddin Khilji the crown prince and son of Hoyasala ruler Bhallala III, along with a large booty captured in the campaigns. The son of Bhallala III was supposed to have been treated very kindly by the Khiljis. After all the help the Hoyasalas provided to Kafu during the Pandya campaign, the crown prince was safely sent back to Dwara Samudra to his father after some time. The kingdom returned to him now that the Hoyasalas had accepted the Khilji suzerainty. Like I indicated earlier, Khilji was more interested in the wealth, loot and tribute from the vassals than a remote territorial annexation. Finally, in 1312 AD, Rama Deva, the Yadava ruler, and the good friend of Alauddin Khilji, dies and his son Sangama ascends the throne of Devagiri. Since Sangama's hostility and contempt for the Khiljis is no secret, Malik Kapoor is once again sent to invade Devagiri, and this time to annex the Yadava kingdom to the Delhi Sultanate permanently. Sangama, after a token resistance, flees and the capital is once again captured. It's worth pointing out that as per Nilakantra Shastri, during this campaign Kafur behaved with moderation to convince the local population that they had nothing to fear their new rulers. But Kafur did insist on destroying many Yadava Hindu temples and building mosques in their place. Considerable regions of the Yadava kingdom did not submit to the new rule and as we saw earlier how most Nayakas or chieftain vassals were eager to proclaim their independence when their suzerain was at weakest. Considering the lacklustre resistance and subservience of the dead Ramadeva to the Khiljis eroded any legitimacy left for the Yadava ruling dynasty. So many such Nayakas or chieftains did use this annexation of Khilji to realise their own political ambitions and independence from the yoke of both Yadavas and the Khiljis. One of the prominent ones was Singeya Nayaka who declared his independence from Yadavas and proclaimed Kampili as independent. Kampili included the modern day Bellary, Raichur, Dharwad districts and three important forts of Kampili, Kummata and Hosamalai Durga. Malik Kafur led an expedition against a newly formed Kampili, but it was repulsed by Singhaya Nayaka and his son Kampiladeva. Immediately after this, in 1316 AD, Malik Kafur was recalled to Delhi due to the declining health of the Sultan Alauddin Khilji. Malik Kafur deputes a general, Ainul Mulk, to administer the Yadava kingdom on behalf of the Khiljis. In 1316 AD, the first Khilji ruler, Alauddin Khilji, dies of ill health and his favourite slave and lover, Malik Kafur executes most of his political opponents in the court. And he also imprisons the dead Sultan's chief, the daughter of Jalaluddin, in the Gwalior fort. And then he installs the infant son of Alauddin from his Hindu wife, Jhatiapalli, daughter of Yadava, King Ramadeva. Shaivuddin on the throne and begins to rule the Sultanate as a regent. Malik Kafur follows up his ascendancy to regency with political purges among the Khilji family and nobility which earns him a lot of enemies who then start plotting his downfall. In mere 30 days of him becoming the regent Malik Kafur is assassinated by Alauddin Khilji's old bodyguards for his mistreatment of the royal family. And with it, Mubarak Shah, another son of Alauddin Khilji, usurps the throne from his stepbrother. It is recorded that Malik Kafur recalled his trusted lieutenant Ainal Mulk from Devagiri some time after Alauddin Khilji's death. And Devagiri was once again lost by the Sultanate. Harapala Deva, Ramadeva's son in law, was able to re establish the Yadava authority once again for some years until the arrival of the new Sultan Mubarak Shah Khilji who marched down to south after his ascension. Mubarak Shah marched along with his favourite slave Khusrau Khan who was a Hindu slave forcibly converted to Islam. So in 1318 AD Mubarak Shah tries to retake the Yadava capital Devagiri. Deva puts up a valiant fight and makes Mubarak Shah work really hard for every inch of the territory in the mountainous Yadava country. In the end, Harpala Deva is captured in the final battle, taken prisoner, flayed alive and put to death, according to Ziauddin Burni, the Muslim political thinker who was a contemporary to Mubarak Shah. Mubarak Shah appoints Malik Yak Lakni as the new governor of Devagiri and then attempts to capture a Hoyasala garrison in the Hoyasala capital, Dwarasamudra. This attempt on Dwarasamudra fails for some reason, though it's not clear why. Before Mubarak Shah leaves to Delhi, he appoints kusro Khan to deal with the Kakatiya ruler, Prataparudra II, who hadn't sent his annual tribute after the death of Alauddin Khilji. kusro Khan marches into Varangal and Prataparudra promptly pays up the pending tributes. Shortly after this, Khosrow Khan was sent by Mubarak Shah once again to retake Devagri. This time, it was the Khelji governor, Malik Yak Lakhi, who had declared his independence, seized Devagiri for himself under the new title of Shamshuddin, and began to mint coins in his own name. Though this honeymoon of his ends real fast, as the nobles of the Devagiri court were sick of his despotism and high-handedness. They conspire to capture him and hand him over to Khusro Khan as he enters Devagiri. This over-ambitious fool is then bound hand and foot and sent to Delhi for execution. While Khusro Khan proceeds down south from Devagiri for a new campaign against the Pandyas whom Khiljis weren't able to subjugate so far. The civil war between Pandya 4 and Pandya 4 resumed immediately after Malik Kafur's return to Delhi in 1311 AD. Sundarapandya, who was faring badly in the civil war, asked for help against his brother from the Khiljis, the very enemies that he and his brother had fought against. He receives a little help from the already overstretched Khiljis and manages to retain a portion of the empire. This is yet another trend we'll keep seeing. Neither any vision nor shame. Gaining power is all that matters for most of these petty princes at any cost and gradually accelerating the collapse of their already declining kingdoms. After 1312 AD, a vassal of Pandya's called Ravivarman Kulasekara of Travancore decided to rebel against his suzerain. So he invades the Pandya country and he marches up until Kanchipuram. Like I said in the earlier episode, this pattern keeps repeating. And Veera Pandya joins his rebel against his brother. So Sundar Pandya is forced to appeal to the Kakatiya ruler Prataparudra for help. A large army is then sent from Barangal in his support. Sometime around 1317 AD, under the leadership of Muppad Nayaka, who is the governor of Nellore. So Muppad Nayaka defeats the rebel vassal and Veera Pandya, forcing both of them to retreat. And then installs Sundara Pandya on the Pandya throne at Veeradhalapatnam, which is also known as Beerdhal. And in 1318 AD, Khan comes knocking on the doors of Pandya kingdom with an invading force. Once again, Pandyas employ their tried and tested Fabian policy or scorched earth tactics, avoiding any or all pitched battles and harassing the enemy with the hit and run tactics. Sundarapandya once again empties all the wealth from his capital and abandons it well before Khosrow arrives, depriving him of any loot he was hoping to lay his hands on. So the Khilji forces in their desperation end up robbing a lone and rich Muslim merchant in the capital, who stays back with the expectation that his religion would save him and his wealth from molestation by the Islamic invaders. Nevertheless, Khusro's expedition turns out to be a major failure and adding to his woes were the torrential rains of the Malabar country that slowed him down. Finally Khusro himself out of desperation contemplates rebellion against his Khilji Sultan which is then discovered by the loyalists in the army and Khusro Khan ends up being carried back in chains to Delhi. But Khusro Khan somehow manages to convince his lover the Sultan Mubarak Shah that he was innocent and he was being set up by his political opponents in the court. khusro Khan in 1320 AD manages to usurp the Khilji throne after leading a palace coup with the help of his Hindu clan, Baradus, who he was with prior to his conversion. So Baradus were helped by khusro Khan to infiltrate the security apparatus of the palace in this palace coup, the Sultan Mubarak Shah is beheaded. The entire royal family and all the heirs of Khiljis are either summarily executed or blinded. Khusra Khan's stay on the Khilji throne though is a very short one, not more than three months. It is said that Khosrow Khan at some point, after coming back from Pandya campaign, had secretly apostatized from Islam and reconverted back as a Hindu. And that this coup and wholesale massacre of Khiljis was a revenge for Mubarak Shah capturing him in one of his Gujarat campaigns, forcibly converting him to Islam, making a slave and sodomizing him over the years. The Khilji general Malik Fakhruddin Juna, then governor of Dipalpur, refused to acknowledge the ascension of Khosrow and he conspires with the nobility to overthrow Khosrow Khan and decisively defeats Khusro Khan's forces at the Battle of Saraswati and Battle of Larawat. Khusro is captured after the final battle and beheaded on Malik's order. Khusra Khan's Hindu clan Baradus are also summarily massacred on the battlefield after being captured, and the remaining ones were hunted down on the streets of Delhi. And with this, the victorious general Malik Fakruddin Juna ascends the throne of Delhi and assumes the coronation title of Ghyasuddin Tughlaq. And like this in 1320 AD, the Tughlaq dynasty takes birth. The political revolution in Delhi that ended Khilji rule gave Kakatiya's Prataparudra II the opportunity to declare himself free again. Even in Maharashtra there were rebellions against the new Tughlaq masters. So, Tughlaqs decide to permanently suppress and do away with all the Hindu kingdoms of the south, starting with the Kakatiyas. In 1321 AD, Ghyasuddin Tughlaq sends an expedition under his son, Ulluk Khan, to reduce the Kakatiyas. Once again, they enter Kakatiya dominions through the forward base of earlier Yadava capital of Devagiri. Ulluk Khan starts laying waste to the countryside as soon as he enters the Langana. This time, Prataparudra too was well prepared, and he fortifies himself up with ample supplies. Uluk Khan's siege lasted for six months without any significant progress. This prolonged siege frustrates many lieutenants in Uluk Khan's army and brings about a situation of mutiny. The risk of mutiny against him forces Uluk Khan to open peace negotiations with Prataparudra. And he agrees to retreat peacefully. Prataparudra agrees to let him go back in peace. But just as the forces under Uluk Khan were beating retreat, the Kakatiya forces fall upon the rear of the army. After being constantly harassed by the Kakatiya forces all along their retreat from the Kakatiya dominions, Uluk Khan tried patching up with this section of his army who had earlier mutinied. His idea was to keep his army intact at least till he reached Devagiri. Prataparudra too was extremely elated at his success against Uluk Khan's army and he prematurely disperses the additional troops in Varangal Fort and opens up their provisions and granaries for public feasting as part of victory celebrations. He becomes overconfident in thinking that Tugluks wouldn't dare attack him again. This turns out to be a major blunder. The Tughlaq Sultan Giyasuddin is incensed at the retreat of his son and doubles down on his efforts to take Varangal again. So he sends reinforcements from Delhi to the forward base Devagiri where Uluk Khan was licking his wounds after the beating he received from Kakatiyas. With these reinforcements Uluk Khan launches a massive assault on the Varangal fortress and also on the Bodhan garrison that's located in the modern Tenizambad district of Telangana. The overconfident Prataparudra, who had sent away the provisions and additional troops in Varangal, is forced to sue for peace after five months of siege. In 1323 AD, Prataparudra surrenders himself and his family to Uluk Khan. On his way to Delhi, it is said that Prataparudra committed suicide by slitting his own throat on the banks of the Narmada River. So, with the death of Prataparudra too the total collapse of Kakatiya kingdom is complete and wiped off the map. After this, Uluk Khan sends an army under his viceroy Usuf Khan to invade the Pandya kingdom. The last known Pandya king, Parakramadeva is taken prisoner and with it Pandyas too come under Tughlaq domination. And in 1325 AD, Ulugh Khan ascends the throne with the coronation name of Muhammad bin Tughlaq and moved the imperial capital from Delhi to Devagiri. The new capital of Devagiri is renamed as Daulatabad. As we will see later, this will turn out to be a monumental blunder by the new Sultan. In 1326 AD, the Sultan Tughlaq, in order to secure the Varangal frontier, led an expedition against the city of Jajnagar in the Ganga kingdom of Orissa and had limited success and finally having subjugated Yadavas, Kakatiyas and Pandyas, most of the south is under the Tughlaq domination. The only prominent Hindu kingdoms that were unsubjugated as of 1326 AD were the Hoyasalas and Kampili. With this, we will end the current episode in which we explore in depth the expansionism of the Delhi Sultanate under Khiljis and Tughlaqs and how it led to the total subjugation Of the Kakatiya, Yadava, and Pandya kingdoms. We also saw how the incessant warring between these kingdoms weakened them to a point where they were in no state to counter the Islamic onslaught effectively. I sincerely hope the listeners enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please do hit the subscribe button and leave a rating and a review. A huge thank you for taking the time to listen to the show. In the next episode, we will explore the state of kingdoms of Hoysala and Kampili, and the Tughla attempts to subjugate them. I hope to see you soon in the next episode. Till then, this is Narendra Vikram, your host and narrator, signing off. Hope you have a great week ahead.